Hello and welcome back to our six-week Skillful Living program. My name is Venerable Tarpa. Before we begin, let's take a moment to appreciate our kind and wonderful community here today. Today, I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world, to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, and to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Again, welcome back to our program. This is our fourth week and our eighth class of our program. In today's class, we're going to be exploring working with pain and suffering. Uh, but let's first take a moment to review what we learned last week. So we are just finishing our... Uh, <clears throat> We are just finishing our awakening through appreciation uh, practice, and boy, was it fun. Um, so today we just finished with the, um, the concluding practice of sustained appreciation. But through the week, of course, we went through, we did six levels of appreciation. And I don't know about you, but I feel great. Boy, every day I woke up, I just sprung out of bed. It was quite the sensation. And I was kind of curious how everybody else uh, felt. I was wondering if anybody here would like to share their experience of the program. Are you feeling appreciative? Did it bring you? We claim that it was going to bring some happiness to you. What I do you felt think? very productive and happy this week. I didn't get, like get bogged down in negativity about work. It was great. Yeah, no, pr productive is a great word. And it's actually a quality that comes from appreciation and happiness that we often don't think about. But you're right. I'm much more productive when I, when I, uh, in a positive mood. Yeah. Lovely, thank you. Anybody else like to share? Labdron, I know you had some, you were sending me some lovely messages. Tell me about your week. Yeah, I mean, I think it got to the point, was it the third day when we're at, I mean, it was completely random, just the, was it the technology and the human accomplishments? I'm not sure of the title of that. Um, day's yeah. theme sort of thing and yeah. yeah suddenly all it was was looking at my fence and then it was like <laughs> oh, this is incredible and it became like you know kind of overwhelmingly incredible that how this fence was built and everything. <laughs> like just not just appreciating it it was something huge of yeah 
more than going that's a nice fence it was yeah it was yeah could you could you say that you were you were able to see the true nature of the fence uh, maybe i mean i saw well i didn't see but it was kind of i saw everything about the fence the the trees the craftsmen the earth like everything about it it wasn't just fence it was all the things that brought it into being maybe the yeah, interdependence of the fence yeah yeah and we would we would call that its nature and oh. and with along with that probably the value of such a thing and all the mm -hmm. people that put work into it but it was almost oh. too overwhelming as you know because it was like this is so incredible <laughs> i don't know what to do with this feeling yeah but then it like you said you just turn the intensity down and and then it kind of dissipated enough that i could yeah it was so yeah awkward. and what you're what yeah. you're talking about is that clarity right into the true nature of things and yes it can be overwhelming yeah you sort of get used to it don't worry yeah and uh, anybody else like to share At the uh, beginning of the week, I would have looked at the fence and appreciated and get the get the understanding behind what it would take to make the fence and, and all the human development that happened. But then I would also think about all the trees that got chopped down, about the scale of humanity in technology. So the technology one specifically was hard for me um, because I would just keep thinking about the negative side of that. So in the beginning weeks, my appreciation would be, I appreciate this. And then, well, I'll tell you what I don't appreciate. So I, it, it took me a few days into this to, uh, to kind of get rid of the negative aspects of that and just focus on the positive. Wonderful. Do you see how a lot of that negative aspect of it is actually your, your, uh, your lack of appreciation for it itself. <laughs> it manifests like that, right? Mm -hmm. And do you also notice that it's not the things in the world that are the problem, it's, it's how we use them, right? Yeah. It's a relationship to things. Technology could be, could save oh. the planet or ruin the planet. It's, it's completely up to us how we use it, right? Yeah. So we're always kind of tough on technology. It's it's systems, eh? And it's uh, it's the way people work together at large scales, or don't work together at large scales. And you know, it, it's the scale that when I start to think of the scale, that's that gets upsetting. Not all the trees, you know. Yeah, <laughs> can't make and fences. Then, very much so. And then when you when you look at how when you look at it in a broader way, and you realize that technology is language and mathematics and agriculture and and health and so again we're we're really getting a chance to look at the true nature of technology seeing its value seeing its potential seeing the magnitude of what technology is in our lives all the things it can do and of course we also get to see how badly we use it sometimes without a doubt but you could you probably understand now why we ask people to suspend their uh 
their skepticism at the beginning because yeah those voices keep coming in and they don't allow us to actually dig into the practice but now that the week's over you can bring your skepticism back and you can <laughs> question it because that's a good thing to do right oh wonderful so do you think i don't know about you but every time i do this program i just see the world differently you know after that week of appreciation of all these different levels I just see the world in a different way. For me, I, I teach the program. This is, I think, the fourth or fifth time we've offered it. It's a reminder to me, and it keeps more and more ingraining that, so it becomes more and more of my default mindset. And I just really, walking around, I just see everything and appreciate everything around me. So it's, it's quite extraordinary. It has this way of just opening up our minds, doesn't it? And our hearts. Wonderful. So glad everybody enjoyed it. Okay, on to our new practice. So uh, today, and I made a mistake at the beginning, I said working with our uh, pain and suffering. Actually, this class is uh, working, uh, uh, challenging emotions and mental states. My apologies. I had my notes a little messed up. And so, uh, and in this class, we are uh, talking about understanding our pain and suffering. So this is both emotions and, and mental states, but also uh, just straightforward pain and suffering. So in Buddhism, we, there's, there's a division between pain and suffering. We see them differently. Uh, pain is defined as uh, the sensation that arises from mental, emotional, or physical injury. I always thought that was a great definition that really cap capulates it, right? That this, uh, the sensation, the feeling that arises from mental, emotional, physical injury. The reason I like it is because it highlights mental and emotional pain as well. We usually think this pain is when we go to the dentist, but um, you can imagine at the loss of a loved one, at the breakup of a marriage, a mental and emotional pain is a big part of our lives. Whereas suffering is seen as a secondary reaction to pain. And I think I have some memes, some slides for you. Um, from the Greek philosopher Seneca, we are more often frightened than hurt. And we suffer more from imagination than reality. And I have another one by the Dalai Lama, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So let me explain that. So pain is a natural part of life. We can't get away from it. We come in the world through pain. We're going to leave the world through pain. And of course, all the different uh, stages in between from the pain of toothaches, the pain of falling down, the pain of school, going back through, through school, growing up, puberty, the pain of dating, it's just throughout our lives, there's just no getting, getting around it. It's a, and a natural part of life. But Buddhism sees suffering as a little bit different. Buddhism sees suffering as this secondary reaction to pain. And in a lot of ways, suffering can be seen as like a story that we tell ourselves. So um, an example would be, um, say that uh, 
say someone passes away, a close friend passes away in your life, well, the first reaction is, is pain. There's no doubt about that. And it's the proper response. And we grieve through it. But um, that pain is fairly momentary, right? That, that pain is the initial shock, maybe for, depending on how close we are, for a few weeks or a few months. But what happens is we can start to spin that into a story. And especially we, we see ourselves victims within the story, like if it would say it was a parent that passed away. And though the pain of the experience dissipates after a certain amount of time, we ourselves keep that pain alive by continually playing the story in our own minds and sharing it with others as well. In a sense, uh, we, can, uh, we can become victims, we can become lifelong victims of pain. So this is what the Dalai Lama means, where pain is inevitable, but, but suffering is optional. You do have some control over that suffering. In Buddhism, the Buddha loved to use the word dukkha for pain and suffering. And in a sense, the word dukkha represents both qualities. The Buddha talks about the quality of dukkha being, you know, things like birth, aging, sickness, and death. So that incorporates a lot of pain, but also our daily suffering, our anxiousness, our fear, our worried, our insecurities, you know, all these other things that we suffer from um, are not feeling significant, not feeling like you belong. There's a great deal of different kinds of, of pain and suffering that we go through. Probably the best uh, uh, definition or, uh, or interpretation of the word dukkha is suffering. And because suffering can be pain or it can be the, the secondary suffering that we're talking about here, the secondary reaction to it. Um, so the idea is that pain is just inevitable in life. Uh, we could do our best to try to avoid it. We can take care of ourselves so we don't get sick. We can we can wear our seatbelt so we don't go flying through the windshield when we're in a car accident. You can try to stay off motorcycles, whatever it is, you can try to avoid pain. But uh, suffering, I think, is is uh, uh, emotional pain and suffering is is kind of impossible to stay away from, right? And uh, emotional pain and suffering from not feeling liked to uh, having problems at work, dealing with people, stress. There's just no end to the amount of mental and emotional suffering that we go through. Um, but again, Buddhism believes that the secondary reaction to pain, this suffering, that we can actually work with it. And uh, so besides uh, straightforward pain and suffering, we also suffer from what we call challenging emotions and mental states, right? And um, first I'd like to explain the term challenging as we use it in the text. So it's easy to call them negative. You know, we're, we're talking about anger, envy, hatred, greed. It's easy to call those negative, but oftentimes uh, some of these, uh, these challenging emotions can have beneficial results, not intentionally, but they do. Anger is a great example of one where anger, though we, uh, 
it's an optimal emotion to use in our lives. It can have, it can have beneficial results in the case of being angry at the face of injustice, you know, that can, that can motivate us to do something about it, to change the world. Um, but, but clearly, it'd be much better if you could find another motivation than anger. But nevertheless, some emotions can lead to beneficial results. Then there's emotions that, uh, that don't. And, and Buddhism considers the emotions of hatred, uh, envy, greed, as not having a positive side at all to them, they, that they just never lead to positive results. So instead of calling them negative and positive, um, I like to instead refer to them as challenging emotions because, uh, you know, they're a part of our lives and we do the best we can to work with them. And then, of course, we have challenging mental states and mental states can be challenging moods that we're in we're in a we're in a sad mood we're in a you know a difficult mood but also mental states like fear insecurity are a couple that i think of right off the top of my head but there's a lot of mental states that we work with um and so when we're talking about challenging emotions and mental afflictions we refer to these as uh and mental states we've referred to these as afflictions and so and we call them afflictions because buddhism asserts that they're not natural parts of our true nature they're they're qualities that their qualities their emotions their mental states that arise from causes and conditions they're conditional and um and some of these afflictions are confusion, delusion, obsessive attachment, aversion, the opposite. There's self-doubt, insecurity, immaturity, selfishness, um, anxiety or laziness. These are examples of affliction. Also anger, jealousy envy buddhism believes those are natural parts of our true nature buddhism asserts as we've talked about the last couple of weeks that they believe that human nature is benevolent and good and wise and all those lovely qualities and our our minds are just afflicted by these other qualities um and so uh, with SBT, we like to refer to these afflictions in all of their various forms as shared human limitations. And the reason why is because uh, when, we, when we look at ourselves in an evolutionary way, uh, Buddhism asserts that we're moving from, we're all moving from confusion to clarity. Right now, we, we this is uh, mentally, spiritually, and the idea is that these afflictions that arise from various causes and conditions that are innate, they are not innate aspects of ourselves. They're like the Buddha likened them to being like a disease. We're afflicted by them, right? And they they uh, they damage 
the quality of our lives. They interfere with our, with our true nature from shining forth. And so um, we call them shared human limitations because we all share them, don't we? We all share selfishness, hatred, greed, aversion, immaturity. I mean, they're human qualities, clearly, right? But just not innate human qualities. And so uh, I like the idea of, of limitations because we, we generally blame ourselves and we blame others for these qualities. Where when you start to realize that we're, we're all kind of victims of them, you know, again, Buddhism really sees our pain and suffering as an affliction, as a disease, an illness. You know, there's that great quote the Buddha says, see the, see the Buddha as the doctor, see the Dharma as the medicine, see the Sangha as the community that nurses us back to health. Buddhism sees the, the suffering and afflictions that we deal with on a daily basis as not innate parts of our lives. They, they, they see them as man-made. We create them ourselves or, or our culture does and we're conditioned to have them. So uh, seeing those limitations, that would, which limits us from awakening, that which limits our happiness, our flourishing. So when we see them as shared human limitations, something happens when you view them in that way because you're recognizing and you're accepting the fact that everyone has them. And so when somebody behaves in a, in a bad way, say somebody behave, behaves in anger, you can recognize that, hey, we all have anger. I have anger too. Now we have them in different amounts, right? Everyone has these limitations in different amounts. One person could be in more, well, they have problems dealing with anger. Another person could have problems with greed or jealousy. So we have them in different amounts, but yet we all have them. Well, what happens is when you see it that way, you start to understand that it's not the person themselves that's in the wrong, that's bad, right? We see the person as afflicted, just like every other human being on the planet. We see that limitation as one that we possess ourselves. And so you start to look past the individual and blame, put the blame where it's, where it's properly, where it properly belongs. And that's on the affliction, not on the person, right? In Buddhism, they, they always say that, you know, all these afflictions, they arise from our ignorance, confusion. And so that's what you blame. You don't blame the person, you blame ignorance. And people are all doing the best they can to deal with these things, you know, on a daily basis, right? We all, we all do the best we can dealing with our afflictions and limitations. We're all trying to be kinder people, better people. And so when, when Buddhism talks about ignorance, they have a very interesting definition. They talk about not knowing, knowing the wrong thing 
or not wanting to know. Not knowing, knowing the wrong thing or not wanting to know. I've always been fascinated by the last one. And it's so true. So many people just want to turn a blind eye to everything and they don't even want to know how to get themselves out of the problems that they have to deal with. So anyways, uh, Buddhism asserts that all these afflictions and limitations that we deal with, again, aren't innate in us, but they arise from this afflicted ignorance that all human beings sadly are born into that we possess. So what's, how do we get around this? Well, first of all, we start, you start teaching yourself how to disidentify yourself and others from these afflictions and limitations. Easier said than done. So, and I think the easiest way to go about it, the easiest starting point is with our language because our language really incorporates all of these, all of these beliefs or all of these habits. Uh, and, um, and it becomes very clear. So as an example, uh, if we're having a problem with anger, I'd say, you know, commonly I'd say, I'm an angry person where if we can change that and, and say it in a more proper way, we would say, I'm experiencing anger. No? I often experience anger. Now it might seem simple, but do you see how we're disidentifying ourselves? I'm not anger, I experience anger. Or another, in another example, I, we would say, I'm impatient, I'm jealous, I'm, where instead you say, I'm feeling impatience. I'm experiencing jealousy. So that sounds like a very small step, but believe it or not, it really starts to change the way you look at your afflictions and limitations. So that's the starting point. And then you also do just the way you look at the world. You know, like as we change the way we saw the world through our practice of appreciation, when you contemplate this idea of disassociating people and ourselves from our afflictions, you start to notice it. You start to see it, right? So when somebody, you're having a problem with somebody, you know, you don't, you don't say that they're an angry person. You say, oh, I see that they're experiencing anger. Another thing it does, it shows you that afflictions are temporary. Where when you say the person's angry, that's not temporary. Or when you understand that, no, they have moments of it. And I'm sure there's other moments that they're not angry. So this is something we're going to start working with this week. Does anybody have any questions so far? Kind of a heavy topic. Right. Yeah, David. I can't seem to see my hand buttons disappeared. It's I don't not know where my it's fault. Gone. <laughs> I just want to say I just love that just being able to just separate it from someone that you find pretty tricky and just seeing it it's human limitations it's not personal kind of thing it's when you can take that step back it's I suppose this is when you can have more sort of compassion empathy for them that they're yeah they're struggling with with limitations of human being human the same ones that you have, right? 
I mean, we all have problems with anger. <laughs> Every one of us. I mean, some people might have just a little bit, but we all do, don't we? And then the other thing about it is we're not making something up. We're not inventing an antidote or a band-aid to go over it. What we're talking about is recognizing the truth. Because it's true, isn't it? These limitations, these afflictions. First of all, it's true they're temporary. We all know that. No, everybody's in a state of constant change. And we all really know that, yes, we all do share them. So again, we're un unveiling the truth to something, just like we did in appreciation. We're not making something up. We're, we're discovering the true nature of things. Thank you. David? Yeah. Um, would would Buddhism hold then that the, the theory of uh, evolution with regard to emotions is just wrong? Uh, Buddhism, as far as I know, doesn't comment on evolution. Um, so uh, the Buddha simply didn't have a model for how people got here. In Tantric Buddhism, there is, and it's a really weird story. But in the in the sutras, I don't think it ever came up from the Buddha himself. Um, but I believe uh, I believe uh, it to be true in every sense of evolution. I think you know uh, we move from confusion to clarity. I think in the twenty first century we possess a clarity I don't believe humanity has ever known before. Yeah. Now I don't think it's a straight line. <laughs> but I do believe uh, it, it works that way and then then I believe in evolution on a spiritual level as well you know we're all we're in each one of our lives we're all moving towards something right aren't we all evolving within our own lifetimes I know as a child I didn't understand very much and now I understand the world in a much much more profound way so I like the idea of evolution. I use it in my own teachings. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Do you like this idea of shared human limitations? It kind of softens it. There's so much blame in the way we look at these qualities, isn't there? Even calling them afflictions, you know, that something's wrong when you're afflicted. Where they're just the qualities that limit us from being who we truly can become right they're just limitations that we need to shut off and move forward okay hey that's great you're a great audience um and what do you think of this idea of disidentifying with them does that sound like a practice that you guys could wrap your heads around you know it's very subtle of course right but whenever you're dealing with people you just kind of keep that thought in the back of your mind and when you have trouble with someone and you you understand, ah, they're angry, just like I was last Thursday at line. And and in a sense, you kind of want to support each other. What, for me, when I see people in it, I feel compassion. I've been there and I try to kind of support the person through it. Uh, Carrie? Um, I was thinking about that in terms of when you're feeling insecure, if you're a person who kind of feels insecure a lot, I can be that way around my peers. And, um, but it's, if you think about it that way, it's sort of dissociate from that. Like, that's not me. That's just a thing I'm feeling right now. And it's not real. Um, it really helps you to kind of overcome that feeling of self-consciousness so you can be more effective. I like that. And also, again, it gets rid of the blame, doesn't it? 
blaming yourself. I'm an angry person. I'm a bad mother. I'm a terrible uncle. And it's like, no, we're just, these are, you, you don't own those, those limitations. You don't own those afflictions. Again, it's like a, like a sickness, like a disease. And Buddhism's the cure. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Enough of that silliness. So I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about negative thoughts and memories, right? Another way we have pain and suffering in our lives. And I've always been, uh, I've always been fascinated by this. I dealt with this a lot uh, in my life growing up and uh, and I've made some really good headway on this. So I wanna share this with everybody. And so uh, this idea of the arising of negative, negative thoughts or memories, we all have had the experience. It's a beautiful day. You're with your family at the beach, not a care in the world. Out of nowhere, the thought comes in your head of, Ricky Rizepko pushing you down on the playground ground floor and embarrassing you in front of Debbie Green. And <laughs> you know, what is the, we get these just out of nowhere for absolutely no reason. We get these negative thoughts that arise. Sometimes they're a bit predictable for myself that I noticed that the busier I got, the more things came up. I used to have my mind flooded with negative thoughts and memories when I would be engaged really strongly in work. And, um, and in Buddhism, they, they kind of have a, an answer for why that happens. But nevertheless, this is something that kind of uh, perplexes people, uh, psychologists, Buddhists, we've all been trying to understand this. Um, and, um, you know, this includes self doubt, things like that. And, and you think about it, if we're if we're all trying to kind of move ahead and live better lives, why are these thoughts coming up? You know, why do we sabotage ourselves with these negative thoughts and memories? Um, so there's many theories about this and actually Buddhism, I never found a good theory for why this happens, but I've heard other spiritual teachers have weird reasons. I remember Eckhart Tolle had some, weird thing about the pain body and talked about it almost like it was an entity that lived inside you that fed off your pain and that's and i couldn't ever believe in such a silly thing like that there's only one entity in us it's us ourselves right besides all your bacteria living in you but um one of the most convincing uh hypothesis that i came across was the idea that the mind is doing it for a beneficial reason, and the mind is doing it to protect itself from further suffering. The idea is that the mind is replaying traumatic events that were clearly traumatic enough that we keep thinking about them, and it keeps looking for solutions. So when that happens again, it'll know what to do. And, and I thought, hey, that's pretty good. Now, it's a hypothesis. Nobody knows if it's true. But you know what I liked about it? It gave me an active way of working with it. It made it so the mechanism of negative thinking and remembering negative uh, memories had a purpose. And having a purpose, it didn't seem to bug me so much. It didn't seem to hurt so much. 
I thought, oh, okay, the brain just make, and I was able to kind of let go of it. I was, I'm able to accept it and let go of it. Yeah. And now just a, just a few weeks ago, I saw another uh, video. I think it was a big thing. That's one of my, one of my go-to uh, YouTube uh, shows. And nevertheless, uh, more scientists leaning towards that hypothesis. So it seems to be one that keeps floating around and it's gaining more and more, I wouldn't call it evidence because how could anybody really know why that happens? But nevertheless, I was really pleased with that. Does anybody here deal with this, these things? A show of hands, who deals with negative thoughts and memories? <laughs> I figured every single person would raise their hand. Yeah, it's part of the, the human experience, isn't it? Do you think it's an innate part of your experience? Do you think that there's just no doing away with it? <laughs> uh, Love drinks say no. She knows the answer coming. Yeah, you can. We can really work with it. I think. I think most people think you can't. You just accept it, and that's the way it is. But I've done a, a great job of working with it, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit. I think we're going to talk more about that tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to get into actually how we work with these things. But um, there is hope, everybody. Um, and I want to talk about one more last thing. I wanted to make this teaching not too long. So I, I hope everybody read the uh, chapter, uh, lesson seven, and enjoyed it. And of course, there's a lot of material there that I just can't cover here. So I'm just touching the, the tip of it here. But there is a, a, a paragraph in it about what we call fuel right and this is a, a to me a fascinating subject and very beneficial so the buddha loved this love this analogy of fuel and fire now it it doesn't come from the buddha actually it comes from even earlier from brahmanism that one of the uh one of the major rituals in brahmanism was the three fires in someone's home and um, you had three sets of fires that you always had to keep burning as a part of the ritual so the buddha kind of incorporated that into his own teaching but puts a spin on it which he loves to do so but to the buddha when he's talking about uh when he's talking about fire he's referring to he refers to it as hatred and desire it often in a, in a bit of a negative light these uh, uh greed these are the ideas of fuel attachment aversion and um and he often referred to these as uh, let alone the three fires but then also called it the three poisons of greed attachment and aversion uh, so, uh, greed attachment and ignorance, I'm sorry. So, um, but the Buddha's idea was that these fire being our afflictions and our limitations, that you don't work at trying to put out the fire uh, on the surface level. For the Buddha, he said, the way you deal with these is you have to go to the root level and the way you stop these fires is to cut them, to cut the fuel that feeds the fire. 
This was the Buddha's idea. So he was always talking about, you know, learning how to stop the fuel. And so the fuel can be thought of in two ways. There's virtuous fuel and non-virtuous fuel. I like to, to, to think of it as contaminated and uncontaminated fuel. And I think I got some more slides for you on that one. So, and I, this is a lovely way to think about these energies that fuel our intentions, that fuel our afflictions, that fuel our actions. So virtuous or uncontaminated fuel arises from clarity, wisdom, joy, goodwill, love, altruism, wonder for the world, appreciation, creativity, curiosity, exploration, fairness, friendship, fun, enthusiasm, responsibility, and a desire for justice, harmony, and well-being, to name a few. Whereas non-virtuous or contaminated fuel arises from our ignorance, our confusion, greed, hatred, competition, envy, aggression, reactivity, resentment, malevolence, pride, narcissism, selfishness, anger, lust, revenge, vanity, or our thirst for power, control, and fame. Now you can kind of see right away how that uh, that contaminated fuel is an affliction, isn't it? It arises from these, these uh, qualities of ignorance and fear. So, and, uh, and this is by uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who's a wonderful Theravada monk. Um, our primal drives and emotions, lust, anger, greed, envy, fear, are merely energies that arise from conditions. They are a part of being human, but they don't define us. When we stop self-identifying with them and create some distance from them and realize their true nature as merely energy, we gain freedom from that. And the reason I put quotes like this in is because I don't think I could write one that good. I mean, that really covers it all, doesn't it? And so again, you can see how we're talking about that these qualities of anger, greed, envy, fear, whatever they may be, arise from conditions. They're afflictions. They're not a natural, innate part of us. Um, and, uh, and again, they don't define who we are. They're, it defines what we're afflicted by, doesn't it? So again, we create a little distance from these things and, um, and we recognize that they're just energies. So the Buddha didn't call them energies, the Buddha called it fuel. And so um, now we can use either one of these energies or fuel to realize our aims, contaminated or uncontaminated, but the quality determines the result. So let's say you want to be a successful business person. You could use all the the virtuous qualities, or let's start with the non-virtuous qualities. You could use greed and competition and envy and desire and, uh, and wanting to be important and famous. You could use that energy to become a successful business person. And clearly, that works. I mean, think about how many business people that are like that. But 
the problem is the result is going to reflect that that energy in which you probably don't have too many friends you probably have a lot of business enemies maybe you have people out there in the world that might try to damage your business or your reputation something that you have to worry about you have to live with you probably don't sleep very well every night but then you could do the opposite you could use virtuous uncontaminated fuel or energy use your 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 desire to see what your own potential to witness your own potential to benefit your com your community to benefit your family to give one to give people good jobs you know there's no end to it just the wonder of life is such a virtuous fuel just to to want to see what you can do in the world and how you can help people now again the the nature of that fuel is going to have a lot to do with the result now in this case i'm guessing that you're a member you're a proud member of the community you're appreciated you're loved you're your employees like you, your family's happy, you're not looking over your shoulder, you have few enemies, and probably you sleep really well at night. So now that's a simple example, but you can imagine that in other examples as well. Now, it's our choice which one we want to use, to a point. I mean, for a lot of people, they're so deep in these afflictions, what we'd call samsara in Buddhism, mundane habitual existence on autopilot, just doing, acting out in the way you were conditioned to do so. You know, you, you practice business in a certain way because all your friends do, because your family did. Some people are trapped in their afflictions. But for a lot of us, there is a choice there. And the choice is, in small decisions and in big decisions. But when you start to understand this, you, there start to, starts to be a desire for making good choices, right? Um, and so our virtuous fuel, again, arises from our benevolent and calm true nature, right? When we calm ourselves down, we gain clarity, and within that is are all our most beautiful qualities. Non-virtuous fuel, on the other hand, arises from our, it feeds and it arises from our afflictions and limitations. They kind of feed each other. But the thing that really feeds this non-virtuous fuel is our busyness, our speediness, our intensity and sense of immediacy right everything has to be done right now this creates obsession neurosis and afflictions Chogam Trungpa one of the great Tibetan lamas in America uh, once said that oh the problem with everybody it's just their speed he thought all his students the problem was their speed he was just trying to get everybody to calm down but it's true, and I notice it in myself, that the busier I get, the speedier I get, the more intensity that the world demands from me, I just watch all these afflictions rise, or that energy rise. It's just, 
It's so obvious to me. I can just watch it, right? So the Tibetans have a bit of a, a cool analogy where they talk about it being like a pot of soup. As we turn up the fire underneath the pot of soup, which is, which is our intensity, the soup will eventually boil over violently, which is our afflictions, right? That's our hatred, that's our greed. greed. But as we become calmer, it's like turning down the, the fire on, underneath the pot of soup. Meditation, mindfulness, all the practices we do, understanding, it allows us to calm down. We bring that fire down and the soup boils at a nice calm level. And as we become calmer and more content, we simply become mentally and emotionally healthier. It's really that simple. In so many ways, I think Buddhism, it's just about becoming calmer, right? And the wisdom that arises from that calmness, the clarity that comes from that calmness. You could say that we all just need to learn how to sit still, just like little kids. You get them to sit still and they, their minds are so much clearer. We never run out of that. Even as adults, we all need to learn how to sit still. Oh, does anybody have any questions? I've been talking and talking and talking. What do you guys think about that? Has anybody experienced the feeling of this fuel? I have a feeling a lot of you have experienced it on the meditation cushion. And you're saying, ah, Tenzatarpa, you're right. I think what is interesting, Tarpa, is that when you do feel you know, that fuel and it is negative, quite often what follows is karma. You know, I always feel that, you know, you're having a bad day, you're angry about something, then something else will happen. And there's that cause and effect, even though you may not be the cause, you just sometimes feel my day is going badly. But but really you've started that day going badly. Um, so sometimes it's, it's trying to stand back and just go, you know what, this has just happened. It's not always easy though. You know, because sometimes it's terrible, sometimes it's, you know, that's all the And the karma being that momentum that arises from the action. But don't forget, virtuous karma produces, virtuous energy produces karma as well, right? It works yeah. on both levels. But you're exactly right. It creates momentum and we're drawn into it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's true. Have any, has anybody experienced when you're on the meditation cushion and a certain day where you just don't seem to be able to sit still every day, Tarpa. You know, you're just anxious, right? It's hard to sit still. You're, you keep looking at the clock. Has it been 20 minutes yet? If you look closely underneath that anxiety, there's, this, there's an energy that's pushing. And when you, get, when you become sensitive to it, you can really start to work with that energy itself. And you could breathe into that energy, calm it down, and then the anxiety falls away and you're able to sit in meditation. Another place in meditation where you can feel it is when you're working with thinking. So you're working with thinking, you're trying to, you got your mantra going on, you're focusing on the breath, whatever you're doing. And you got the, the big thinking covered, 
right? Okay, that stopped the big thinking. And you think, oh, here I am, I'm doing real well. And then all of a sudden you realize, hey, there's another level of thinking going on. What's this other level of thinking? Which is kind of more like a bit of a whisper and a, like a mumbling of, of, of different things. And then, and then you work with that and you get that under control. And then you start to feel this energy. And you actually get to the point where you can sense thoughts coming before they come. You feel the energy that produces the thought. Now, this is how some meditators are able to stay in the, in the state of no thought for hours is because they can get to the subtle point where they can work with that energy just as it, just as it begins to bubble. They can breathe into that energy before it ever even comes close to a thought or a, or a, a whisper. So this is the level that we can work with that energy. And that energy, both virtuous and non-virtuous, is there underneath everything we do. I feel that energy when I get hungry and I want a sandwich. <laughs> it doesn't always work, but I can often work with that. I realize that there's an anxiety, there's an anxiousness or anxiety there that's coming up and that I'm going to satisfy it with something, usually Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So we can, when you're aware of these energies, you can start to work with them, right? But I wanted to give you a little bit of a deep dive into where these afflictions and limitations and uh, negative mental states and memories and things like that come from. They come from this very, very deep level of energy. And the Buddha says, that's where you end the fire. You cut the fuel, the fire goes out. You're not waving a towel around trying to put the fire out. You just cut the fuel line. So that's how Buddhism does it. We go right to the root of things. Okay, I've been talking and talking. How about we wind things up with a little conclusion of today? So today we began exploring understanding our pain and suffering, uh, including our challenging uh, emotions and mental states. Uh, we talked about our afflictions and shared human limitations. We learned um, uh, and we're encouraging you to, to experiment with disidentifying with your own and others' limitations. We also learned about this fuel behind our mental states, behind our afflictions, behind our intentions that drives our actions. Um, so in tomorrow's class, we're gonna learn how to do something about it. We're gonna explore working with our pain and suffering, our, uh, our afflictions and um, and so forth um, so but until then i want you to start exploring and working with some of these things we talked about today uh, especially trying to disidentify ourselves and others from our afflictions and limitations it's quite fascinating i hope you find it as fascinating as i do um, Remember that we're continuing to practice our threefold training of virtue, understanding, and awareness. We did a teaching today in the retreat on the threefold path, a bit of a deep dive. I thought it was pretty interesting. You guys should uh, 
watch that. It's going to help your practice a lot. I gave some really good instructions. And then, of course, when problems arise and challenges uh, are, are there, apply your four steps of acceptance. Pa, ah, ah, to balance yourself and to uh, bring some rationale to the situation. Um, so always remember that I'm a click away for help and support. Please take advantage of our WhatsApp groups and uh, to share any kind of questions, insights, or experiences you might have about uh, your practice with our community. And with that said, let's end today's teaching with our altruistic affirmation. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well, may all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Thanks everybody for coming. Remember that the SPT community is here for one purpose, to help you, the practitioner. Yes.